I think my biggest piece of advice is that you are enough to do the job. If you want to do it, I think you also have to be flexible and you want to learn. I think you can't go in with, I'm going to fix everything. I have done trial and error stuff with my staff and some things have kind of worked out better and some things have not, right? And then you you do it, right? And there are some things that I do that I know that my staff appreciate. And then there are other things that I'm still, they're just things that happen behind the scenes. I think you also have to be a little bit comfortable with knowing that you may not get a lot of recognition for what you do. And that's sometimes hard as a manager <laughs> because I am managing a lot of things at my company and it it can't, it does feel like sometimes it goes unnoticed, but I know that my team is solid and we're providing the best care for our residents. Hi, I'm Clarice Grody and welcome to the Amplify OT podcast. I'm an occupational therapist by trade and a policy wonk by choice. This podcast is here to help you survive and thrive in the U.S. healthcare system through a better understanding of policy, advocacy, and value-based care. So let's dive in. All right. Welcome back, OT Amplifiers, to the Amplify OT podcast. I am super excited to welcome Lauren Burns to our episode today. I, we've been talking on Instagram for a long time, right? Which is one of the beautiful things of social media has its own downsides. But again, the big upsides are connections because otherwise I don't know that we ever would have met. But it's exciting. And I'm glad to have you here. I feel like, let's see, you've probably, we've probably known each other for about a year now. I feel like that's probably when you started I think so. tuning in. I think that's right. I'm excited to have you here. Lauren is a director of rehab, but also still new into her career, graduated in 2019. Is that correct? So yes. Yes. And I've seen that kind of an increasing trend where we see an increasing trend in folks that are newer in their career being advanced into leadership roles for better or worse. You know, there's lots of pros, lots of cons to kind of deciding when leadership is the right choice. And it depends on the person, but that also kind of comes with some interesting things. And you've navigated those and we've talked about that. So that's why you're here is to talk about that. So I'd love if you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work and your experience and kind of what's been going on. Sure. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm Lauren Burns. I work at a skilled nursing facility in Ohio. I live right outside Columbus. My facility has a whole continuum of care. We have independent living, assisted living, a memory care wing and our health center, which has our long-term and our skilled residents. So I have a pretty big facility. I graduated in 2019 as a newbie. I uh, was working at another nursing home, PRN, to cover maternity leave while I was applying for the job that I currently have. My building was a new startup building. So it was like a brand new building when I began working as an OT. I worked PRN, so as needed to grow to full-time. Um, and I've been full-time since February of 2020. And we all know what happened in March of 2020. Right a good time, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, that was a great time. Probably uh, like a lot of newer grads who graduated between like that 2019, 21 year, there was definitely a drop in uh, census, especially in a skilled nursing facility. I literally got hired full-time and then like the world got shut down. And so I was a full-time employee getting like 10 hours a week because we were like not accepting admissions and COVID protocols. And like my facility did a really great job maintaining our protocol. I was lucky enough that my facility didn't get a huge outbreak in the beginning of COVID. We got one kind of later on down the road when it was a little bit less serious. Um, but 
there were many a days doing uh, showers in full PPE. Like it was Oof. just a sweaty, it was a sweaty time <laughs> yeah. um, in a nursing home for sure. So I was started out as a staff OT and then I transitioned to the manager in April of last year of 2022. Okay. So you've been at it for a little over a year now. Just over a year. Mm-hmm. It's hard to believe. It is definitely crazy <laughs> to believe that I've been in charge of a team of people. And how many people are you in charge of? So right now my team is, there are six people on my rehab team, including myself. I have a full-time physical therapist, a full-time physical therapy assistant, part-time physical therapy assistant, full-time speech therapist, and myself as the manager and the occupational therapist, a full-time OT assistant. And I just hired a month ago, another full-time OT um, who works an alternate schedule because we have been so busy at my building that I was not able to be a successful manager and OT because it was too much documentation for one OT to do. So at my company, my standard for a manager is 60% productivity, uh, which means I have to treat five hours a day. And that's pretty common, I feel like, for Mm -hmm. a lot of SNFs is that DOR still tends to hold on to some productivity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's definitely a thing. I would say my company specifically is really honing in on our operations, so our modes of therapy and productivity. So they're really looking at that. Now, obviously, as a director of rehab, you're like, oh, productivity is lower. It's so easy. It's not easy. Yeah. (laughs) It's not easy to maintain because you have to balance doing your treatment and also being a manager. So for the first six months of this year, I had hired a part-time OT assistant and then they kind of ghosted me. So then I like Mm -hmm. went six months of like just being overworked and overrun and felt like I couldn't get anything accomplished without having some additional PRN come in. And so we ended up looking at hiring somebody full-time. I was nervous about that. My support person said, I think a full-time OT would be better. And I said, how would that work? Because myself and my full-time CODA work Monday through Friday. And I was like, I feel like they do have to share. And we have some other sister campuses in my area that we can kind of share staff as needed, or they'd have to work an alternate schedule. So it turns out that the OT I hired, she works an alternate schedule. And it has made my life a lot easier um, <laughs> in some cases. And then there are still some days where we get a lot of admissions on the day that she doesn't work. And then I just roll with the punches. You know, that's just kind of the name of the game with skilled nursing. Yeah, that's the fun part, right? About therapy and healthcare is it's something different every single day. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, I think so. If you were a, became DOR about a year and a half ago, I think that's probably about the same time that you started messaging me. So how did you find... Amplify OT or my context. I think you, did you find me on Instagram first? I'm pretty sure I found you on Instagram first. And then we kind of connected. I was like transitioning from OT to manager. And I really felt like the piece that I was missing was the reimbursement piece. Um, That's Mm -hmm. something I felt like I didn't get. I got like a top level in school, right? Like in school, I got the basic, like tip of the iceberg, like Medicare A, you have to be in the hospital for three days. And then like, Ta-da, like that was it, right? And it was like <laughs> Medicare Part B is basically everything else. So I was like, there's definitely more nuance in a skilled nursing facility too, in terms of with our long-term care residents, uh, what's called the case mix index and all that kind of stuff. Like it just gets kind of dicey <laughs> sometimes. And so I found your content to be super helpful and easily broken down. Um, I think I first bought your rehab reimbursement guide when that little booklet you have. Yeah, my adult rehab guide. Yeah. Yes, which was very helpful for oh, somebody <laughs> stepping into stepping into a manager role because you do a really nice job of breaking down 
what seems to be really complicated, but it's not really that complicated. Once, once you learn like the lingo, and I think that's what I have felt has helped me continue to be a manager. Like listening, I just listened to your podcast yesterday talking about um, A and B. And I was like, this is so relevant for my whole setting. Like, this is, <laughs> it's, it's my whole life, right? And in skilled nursing, you know, we deal with a lot of people who come in for short-term rehab right. and then they go home. At my facility, we also have a contract with a home health company. So I also dabble a little bit in home health, but I am definitely not as up on my home health stuff. And I don't, <laughs> I don't pretend to be because uh, skilled nursing is my jam. And I really like being in the subacute setting. Home health is just kind of a, a different beast that I'm still learning. It's a whole different ball game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially, you know, if you are in one of those kind of transitional facilities where you have that longer care side, you have the sniff side, then you also are having some home health and then having like your assisted living area, right? Then you are really dealing with PDPM Medicare Part A. And then of course you have Part A for home health, PDGM, which is a whole other bear. Whole beast. Are calculated very differently. And then you've got Part B, which is just also completely different. And I, I always say that I think personally PDPM is one of the most confusing payment models, in my opinion, just because of how much simple coding adjustments can make a big difference in like daily payment. But yeah, and so I'm glad that the adult rehab guide was helpful. It's actually my very first product <laughs> that I Yay. ever produced as part of Amplify OT. And then I think you also, you bought my course I think, right, when it first came out last, like last fall, I think is when you got it probably. And then now you're part of the membership. Yeah, which is really exciting. It's super fun. I mean, it's just really good to have an easy resource. I think what I have appreciated the most is just knowing that I can like reach out to you on Instagram and be like, hey, I have this thing, point me in the right direction. (laughs) And usually you send me a link to the CMS site, which is very helpful because I just don't always gravitate to look at that in my everyday life because I'm busy at work treating patients and managing schedules. You know, I have a pretty big team in terms of therapists that are underneath me. And we have been running a very high caseload, you know, like we've had anywhere from like 17 to 20 skilled residents at a time on caseload. And so it's a lot, it's a lot to manage. And I'm glad that, you know, it's, it's always funny because if you try and go to the CMS website and find the resource there, you've already lost because navigating CMS's website is a nightmare. (laughs) I wouldn't wish that on anybody because if you look for something, it could pull up an article from like the 80s and God knows what information's in there, (laughs) you know, but like that's kind of one of those funny things, right? We kind of forget that like Googling is a skill and learning to find resources quickly is a skill that I have acquired over the last, let's see, almost six years of like learning about policy and advocacy. So I know just the right keywords to find. And so it's always nice, you know, when people message me or when you message me and ask questions and it's always fun too, because sometimes I get to learn something new. I used to tell myself that I wouldn't give such detailed responses in Instagram because it just takes up a lot of time. But then if people ask me a question that I don't know the answer to, I can't help myself. I have to go and investigate and find all the resources and end up spending an hour down a rabbit hole on your behalf. I'm like, this is what I found. (laughs) This is what I think. And then we get, you know, I just love a good little policy uh, brain teaser, but that's okay. There's got to be something for everybody, right? Absolutely. And so I love for you to talk about too, because again, you talked about lacking that reimbursement. We kind of talked about this a little bit before uh, hitting record is that I think when we think about leadership, we always tend to think that someone has something that we don't, right? That to become a leader, they had to have these mystical boxes checked that we don't have and that they must be, 
you know, very good and very smart and have all this training. And then once you become like a director of rehab, it's like your brain expands and knows more information. Right. But really you just went from (laughs) being an OT to being a DOR and still an OT. The only difference was hopefully pay, but, and a little bit of job description. Right. You know, and so I'd love for you to talk about that. Like how did your company handle that transition? Was there much of a transition or training in terms of reimbursement or policy or how, how did that work for you? So for me personally, my previous uh, director of rehab, had just come back from her second maternity leave. She, it was like a year apart between her two kids. And she had decided that she was going to move back home closer to family, which was not close to the facility. And I definitely have had and still have um, some imposter syndrome around being a manager. Mm -hmm. I won't sugarcoat that at all. When I found out that she was moving on. I was thinking, I said, hmm, I had covered for part of her second maternity leave. I said, I'm pretty organized. Um, And I kind of picked her brain first and said, do you think I would be good at this job? To just be like, you know, pal to pal, you've worked with me, you know, for two years now. Do you think I'd be good at it? And she said, yes. So part of it was kind of that affirmation and hearing from her some of the struggles that she had had, which I had kind of seen through working with her um, as a manager and things that I knew that I would want to do differently as a manager. But also it was a little bit of job security for me because I did not want them to hire an OT as a manager and then risk me losing my position at the company. That's a good point. Because because I really like the company that I work for. Are we perfect? No. I like the values that we stand for at my company and I wanted to continue to grow in my company and that's an easy way to do it is to become a manager. I don't have high hopes to like move up further necessarily. Um, but being a manager, it's definitely been eye opening. So my transition looked like I'm pretty sure I had two weeks of overlap with my current manager. So when I had like applied for the position internally, and then been accepted for it, my manager had been kind of pulling me aside and showing me other things, right? You know what I mean? She had a list of fewer things that you want to make sure that you do. So I definitely was lucky enough to have a couple weeks of like overlap, things that she was showing me how to do. She was still at the campus. Um, We had switched our documentation system entirely. I started at like towards the end of April of last year. And on April 1st of last year, we totally switched our documentation system. Um, We had been using Kasamba and then we switched to Rehab Optima or NetHealth, Mm, um, which a lot of field nursing use that program. But what we had to do on the back end was like, they like took all of our current patients and we had to like do a transitional evaluation. And I was, it was like the worst April Fool's joke my company had ever played on us. And I was very overwhelmed. So thankfully, we had <laughs> gone through that transition when I was not the manager. So yeah. um, that has been helpful to have that. And so then after uh, that transition, I did a little bit of onboarding um, with my like support person, my area manager. But really, a lot of it has been talking to other program directors in my area that I know um, at one of the facilities that's close to me, another one I've connected to because we were doing a similar program that our company did as an initiative that we had kind of connected. We do a meeting every year for all of our um, director of rehabs in my company. And so in April was when that was, and I had been like a program director for a year. (laughs) Um, So that was cool to actually connect face to face with people that don't get to see all the time. um, And to just brainstorm ideas, right. About my company's really pushing grouping and current 
ways to kind of help as a manager, how I could help manage that for my team in terms of how can I schedule that for them? What kind mm-hmm. of things can I do to help support and encourage my team? Um, I think one of my strengths as a manager is that I am very supportive and I'm an encourager and I try not to let things bog me down. Um, the hardest part I think about being a manager is that shift because I'm still in OT too finding that shift in your brain of like when you're working on OT tasks versus manager tasks, right? You it's hard to do them both at the same time. Sometimes it kind of works out like if you're doing you're having your patient do their exercises or they're on the bike, you can kind of check your email real quick. But it's not anything like serious, right? You know what I mean? Like you can like check real quick to make sure you didn't miss like an insurance update. Yeah. So I think that shift is something that I'm still kind of working through uh, in terms of making sure that I do it mentally. And then I also say it out loud to my team. Like when they're asking something related to what I do as a manager, like, oh, I haven't gotten there yet because I'm finishing X, Y, and Z, right? Right. Because that's the shift I have to make in my own brain because it does take a different mindset to schedule for your whole team and make sure that the minutes are put appropriately for your patients and, you know, make sure if you're doing a part B patient and your MDS coordinator needs something that you're coordinating on. There's just a lot of like puzzle moving pieces on the manager side, right, that kind of goes unnoticed that you just kind of sit at your computer and are like, you have to like mentally figure out in your brain what's happening. Whereas <laughs> being an OT, like I'm good at being an OT. Sometimes it's easy. Like when I do my OT stuff, I'm like, yeah, I'm doing really great. Yeah. <laughs> then you get to the manager stuff and you're like, oh, crap, I forgot that this person's off this day, you know, like just it all kind of can come at once. But there are definitely still days now where I just feel like, Am I good enough? Am I doing the right thing? Right. Whether it's for my patients or my team. And I think that will probably always partially be with me. I think it is part of just how new I am to still being in that manager role. But it's definitely something that I'm growing in. Are you ready to take your occupational therapy practice to the next level? Then look no further than the Amplify OT membership. You heard that right. Amplify OT has its very own membership program. This membership is designed to help occupational therapy practitioners just like you stay informed about the latest developments in Medicare and advocacy. You will have exclusive access to resources, webinars, the Mastering OT Policy and Medicare course, Q&A sessions, plus the ability to DM me your questions and get answers fast. But of course, that is not all. As a member, you'll be part of a community of like-minded occupational therapy practitioners who share their expertise and offer support. So by joining the Amplify OT membership, you'll be able to stay up to date on the latest Medicare regulations and guidelines, learn how to advocate for your patients and your profession, connect with other OT practitioners and students to share your knowledge, and you'll have access to those exclusive resources and webinars so you can reach your full potential as an OT provider. So don't miss out on this opportunity to take your practice to the next level. Sign up for the Amplify OT membership today by going to the link in the show notes or amplifyot.com forward slash membership. Don't forget to stay informed and be the change that you want to see in our healthcare system. Yeah, and I think you've highlighted a few really important things kind of talking about the journey into management. One of the main ones that I picked up on is, you know, mentorship and the value of having that support. And I think that's something that we cannot you know, emphasize enough anywhere, whether you're a brand new grad or, Mm -hmm. you know, for me trying to get into policy, I've had a lot of different mentors who have been so kind to take my phone calls and answer questions because Mm -hmm. you can't figure it out yourself. And I mean, if you want to try, go ahead, I guess. But mentorship is just so 
powerful and I think special to, you know, yeah, we get down on ourselves and imposter syndrome. I mean, that's, I've felt that even in what I do now, you know, I've laughed about that as like, you know, I own Amplify OT. I call myself a Medicare specialist, but it's a completely made up term. Like I just (laughs) didn't feel comfortable with the term Medicare expert. So specialist is like pretty close, but you know, there's nothing that like makes me all of a sudden qualified to do this. I've learned a lot. I know more than, you know, people who've never looked at it at all, but there's not like some sort of, you don't like kind of walk through a magical mist and you feel prepared. And I think that's something that we all struggle with is that imposter syndrome or am I good enough? Or do I know enough? Will they respect me? And I think that's also Mm -hmm. something you highlighted really well of having those kind of two different brains of OT and manager is that it also creates this really difficult relationship with your staff as well, because you're Mm -hmm. kind of part of the team, but you're still their boss. And I know how that's like a little bit is from the other side of being the staff member where I worked for a home health agency where the only two OTs were myself and my boss. And so I was trying to, as a new grad in home health, it was so challenging. I was trying to learn. And so she was supposed to be my mentor, but at the same time, you don't really want to be calling your boss and be like, I don't know how to treat this patient. You know, it's kind of like, it's kind of the things I'd like to my boss to think that, no, I'm just like really naturally smart and good. Right. You know, so it creates this really uncomfortable dynamic sometimes of where, and I see this like on Facebook too, of like OTAs who work with OTs that are the DOR. And they're like, how do I tell my DOR that I don't know what they're talking about? It's just a, it's a complex environment because yeah, you want to be friends and you want to be supportive with your staff and hang out with them, but it's also can probably be very isolating as a manager. Like, do you feel that? Oh, a hundred percent. That's my whole life right now. I feel like I don't quite fit in with the team. And what has been hard for me is because I started as a staff OT. Um, mm-hmm. So of my staff of seven total, so I have six people under me, four out of the six knew me as a staff OT. Yeah. And then the other two have been hired on since I've been the manager. So there are two of them that like really only know me as like the manager and OT. And then like a majority of my staff like knew me as like, oh, Lauren, she's our OT. She's the one who knows where to find all the bedside commodes. And she's really good at wheelchairs. You know <laughs> knows where I mean? the buckets like, are, right? <laughs> I know. I know where to find all the equipment, right? And then I carry on bedside commodes in the facility like it's my job, right? Um, so I do think what helped me to, and part of the reason I wanted to become the manager at my building is because I was a staff OT and because I have known a lot of the residents and families, especially our long-term families. I was like, this is a familiar face. I already knew the leadership team at my campus in my facility. It felt like an easier transition than somebody new being dropped in who didn't understand our culture and what happened at the building. So that also made it easy, but it also is a weird transition. I think it's also something to keep in mind for skilled nursing. So I work at a facility where we are not a contract rehab team. And so our rehab team is actually underneath our whole company with a skilled nursing facility. Now we have our own like CEO and COO of like the rehab branch, but we're underneath our larger company, which is part of what drew me to the company um, because I had worked for a contract company. So when you contract in a skilled nursing facility, you can also feel isolated, right? Because you're so different than the staff there. It's the same and not at the facility I work in because we are held to the same standards as our overall company. It does feel like we're part of the team and part of the family, Mm -hmm. but it's also therapy doesn't always have to do as many things as the rest of the staff that's in a campus. So it can still kind of feel like 
we're just kind of hanging out on our therapy island, which I don't always mind, right? But, right, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, trying to make sure as a manager, what I'm also still growing into is how I can form those bonds that are with the rest of the leadership team, um, especially like the nursing and the caregivers, like some of those people to make sure that we're all on the same page um, in a skilled nursing facility with modes of therapy. Sometimes it can be hard when the residents right. aren't up or dress. Um, right. Like, oh, therapy will do it. The chronic like, therapy challenge. <laughs> absolutely. Or like, oh, there are no residents in the dining room. And my staff take their residents to the dining room every time around lunchtime. We're like, hey, this is a great place to walk to. They're going to serve lunch right now. Yeah, right. So I think it's um, the mentorship piece was really helpful. And I think it's really, it's sort of turned into a little bit of friendship with the other managers that I know. Right. Um, because there are, I have like two go-tos, right? Like if one doesn't answer, then I call the other, right? Or like, you know, just if they're, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like I do have a list and not that it's like a favorites list, but it's a like, you know, if I've asked this person about something similar before, I usually try to go back to that person <laughs> Yeah. or like somebody who like is just closer in like vicinity, like the one program director works in my same area and the other works in a different part of the state. So right. we're not quite in the same cluster of people. Um, but the way that we do things as a company is similar and the expectations they have for us as managers is also the same, like across the company. Yeah. And I'd love to hear too about how, you know, learning that kind of reimbursement and learning the policy, because especially you talked about how your company is pushing group and concurrent, which I do not think your company is alone in that. I mean, you know, you just have to take a perusal on Reddit and right. Facebook and <laughs> you'll see it everywhere. But yeah. You know, how has learning about the reimbursement systems and the regulations kind of either helped or has it helped you in those conversations, both when you're kind of hearing it from your managers about what they want from your staff and then conveying that to your staff and kind of being that go between? So I feel like it can be like a game of telephone sometimes and stuff gets lost in translation. So how has that impacted you and your comfort in your job? So I think I'm still learning how to best relay that the grouping concurrent, like the expectation of what we're doing both ways, right? From what I'm hearing to my staff and then from what my staff and what I'm seeing in the facility mm -hmm. is not always reflected in the numbers, which I think that's probably true in every facility because I feel like it can, for me, it can feel like it could get very unethical very quickly. Right. Um, and so I know that we're always trying to do what is clinically appropriate for our residents. And so I always try to keep that language in mind in talking to my management staff, right? If it's not clinically appropriate for these residents who are a two-person assist and can't get out of bed, like we cannot bring them to the gym for group and concurrent therapy. Yeah. You know, like it doesn't happen. And then there are other people who are very mobile and very out and about. What's helpful about reimbursement in that aspect from group and concurrent is just making sure that I'm looking at the numbers to make sure they're not over their percentage for their stay because we, we all know that individual treatment is you know, kind of cream of the crap, right? But I have seen with group and concurrent therapy, my facility, people who are there for rehab start to form bonds, right? They start to become right. friends with each other in the gym. Hey, how are you doing today? And it's been really cool to see that because I graduated right before COVID hit. And then in COVID, we kind of put group and concurrent to the side right. because everybody was in group treatment. We were sweating to death every day as therapists, <laughs> donning PPE like left oh, and right. Yeah. You know, we all remember those days. And so it's kind of, it's coming back right? Mm -hmm. I, I can't tell if it's cool or not. But I do think the camaraderie part of the rehab 
patients getting to see other people who are either in similar situations to them does really boost their mood and their spirits, right? They're not sitting in a room wondering, am I going to get better? They're seeing other people in the gym doing things and interacting with each other. So that's been really helpful. Reimbursement language has helped me too with our long-term care residents and understanding what the heck it means. (laughs) You know, why, (laughs) why is it important? You know, what do the cuts actually mean in terms of how does that affect what we do? The biggest one being with Part B's, we make more money if an evaluating therapist treats them versus an assistant, right? And so as a manager, I have to weigh sort of a little bit of a cost, but like, does the evaluating therapist have room to see all of them? Or does it have to be, you know, can I pass off to an assistant today? You know, they're normally less frequent than our rehab, like our short term rehab stays. But I think it's just helpful for me to have the language myself. That way, I can better explain what's going on. Um, But I'm still growing in that being able to be kind of super definitive in what I say. And it also helps when I talk to families because Mm -hmm. families typically do not understand what's happening. When their loved one comes to a nursing home, they're like, this is my first time. I'm like, great. I would love to help you. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Experience. Right. Um, But it is helpful to have like some kind of simplified language. And I, when I listen to your podcast about uh, like co-insurance or maybe it was in your course about co-insurance versus co-pays. Co-pays. Yes. That was very helpful because I feel like I had been saying co-pay for the extra part that Medicare doesn't cover under a skill all the time. And then I was like, oh, it's actually a co-insurance. So now I say co-insurance, yeah. right? I say your co-insurance <laughs> is this. If you have X, Y, or Z, and then like, but the payment is X amount of dollars a day if you don't have that, right? So right. I think it's helped to give me context for the family so they better understand the insurance world because it's, it's crazy. And sometimes the families are really appreciative and sometimes they still get mad. So, you know, you win some, you lose some. <laughs> That's therapy right there in a nutshell. You win some, you lose some. And and I think that's so true. You know, that's where I found the most kind of freedom and understanding reimbursement and policy was my ability to kind of explain it to others, right? Because you have to have a certain level of understanding in order to be able to teach it to somebody else. Yeah. And I always like to say, you know, if the healthcare system is confusing to us, you can guarantee it's confusing to our patients. I mean, we live and work in it every day let alone to someone who pops in and out of the system, you know, maybe they haven't, you know, I think of like someone like my grandmother, she hadn't been to the hospital. Like she went to the hospital when she was like 94. She hadn't been in the hospital since she was like 60 and had broken her hip. Right. You know, which is very fortunate for someone who was in their nineties, but like she had no idea what to expect. Or you have those patients. I saw them all the time in a queue who were like, well, when I got my knee replaced in the nineties, I was in the hospital (laughs) for two weeks. I'm like, well, now you got 24 hours, pal, you're out, you know, like, it's no two weeks here, you right. know? And so right. I think it's part of that understanding. Cause I know we also had a conversation with, um, about maintenance therapy, right. Where you had a patient with maintenance. I still have that patient and I reached out <laughs> to my own uh, clinical support, uh, just to get some feedback on our documentation from somebody who's kind of outside, which I think is also helpful to keep in mind right. as a manager is it's one thing for me just to know, like personally, I think at first it was like, what about maintenance therapy? Because a family member had brought up um, the gym of settlement, like from the get go, like the day I evaluated, <laughs> they um, were prepared. For they they oh, Googled very prepared. They have Googled a lot and I don't know how <laughs> accurate, but I don't question that. I just say, okay. And that, and they said to me, well, didn't you learn Medicare law in school? And oh. I said, in response, I said, 
No, I learned it on the job, which is not a lie because I learned the surface level about reimbursement in school. And then I learned the nitty gritty on the job because it's so specific in each setting. Mm -hmm. I feel like you get such a high level in school because you really, you have to learn it on the job, right? You learn it's different. My field work placements were not in skilled nursing. So I learned all of my skilled nursing reimbursement on the job by asking questions, right? And I think there's a level two of you have to be comfortable asking those questions when you don't know the answer, right? And so that's why reaching out about maintenance therapy, you gave me some good resources. You know, I kind of been talking to my team and then I reached out to my area manager and said, hey, we still have this, this case. And she was like, let's send it to our clinical support to look at the documentation to make sure what we're saying in our documentation is matching what we're doing. And I said, right. Why didn't I think again, that's why you have support people, right? To reach out to, you know, if you can't, you can't always do it alone. And having somebody that just reviewed the documentation and gave some good feedback on things that was I perfect in that documentation? No, no, old me as a newbie grad probably would have cried. New me, you know, I've been doing this for almost four years. I was like, Oh, okay, I can change these goals. I need a progress note or research to better match what we're doing. But the overall feedback was we're documenting appropriately. And I said, okay, that's what I needed to know. You know, I was worried that it was good, that it was starting because it feels kind of dicey. And so it's nice to like have somebody read it and be like, mm-hmm. it's not actually as dicey as it feels because sometimes it can feel like you're doing the same thing over and over and over again. And in a maintenance program, you do want to maintain, right? You do want them to like right. stay at a similar level and not get worse. Right. right. You don't see that kind of improvement. Right. And so that's hard as a therapist, because as a new grad, I feel like in school, they're like, oh, everybody's going to come in on a wheelchair and walk out with a walker. Yeah, you they're know? all going to get better. And they, Except when they don't. Families, <laughs> I know. And some families still have that false sense of hope. And that's where it's hard as a therapist and a rehab director to try to find like the reality, right? Like we're trying mm-hmm. to get them. I always put their maximum level of independence. I never say I'm going to get your level into independent. I say maximum level of independence because for some people that's going to look like supervision. And for some people that is going to be independent with a walker or a cane or nothing Mm -hmm. if they're really high level, right? But the goal is always the same to get them to that maximum level because that's what we want as therapists to see those success stories. And sometimes you have really great success stories. And other times they're like small success stories, right? Where you're like, right. wow, I made a difference for this time. And they really appreciated what I did. And other people come in at one level and leave at a completely different level to like go on to an inpatient rehab facility. And you're like, wow, I helped in that process to get them there. And I hope that they remember that they had a good experience here. We're just part of that journey, right? We're not the solution mm-hmm. to their problems. We're just part of that journey. And I think once you take that, pressure off of yourself to be the solution to people's problems. It not only makes it easier interacting with patients, but also kind of saves you mentally from feeling Mm -hmm. so responsible. And also, you know, talking about that to the max, I like that, you know, that we're going to get them to their maximum level of independence. It's Mm -hmm. also reflecting then too patient choice and patient goals, because not all patients desire Mm -hmm. to be independent, especially if you're doing culturally competent care, you know, being mm-hmm. fully independent is very much an American perspective on yes, aging, absolutely. you know, versus there's a lot of cultures where they don't want to be independent. It's the family's job to take care of them. And like, that's fine with me. We'll work on that if that's what you want to work on. And I think it's good. And I wanted to highlight too, something else you said about having, you know, someone else look at your documentation and that highlights that perspective, right? That insurance companies don't know our patients. Right. 
they only know what we document and they also don't really know us. They only know what we document. And so mm-hmm. when these payment models are developed or when we were talking before we got on about managed care, right? When they're reviewing whether or not to decide that the patient no longer needs therapy, all they're looking at is your documentation and your mm-hmm. notes. And so if we aren't painting that picture, and I think that comes to of that perspective of like really understanding our skill and what occupational therapy is, not even having other people know what we do, but ourselves really thoroughly understanding the value we provide and what we do and making sure that's reflected then in our documentation, that makes a big difference because when I see someone walking down the hall or doing, you know, brushing their teeth, I'm like, well, of course this person needs therapy. They can't go right. home. <laughs> but the person reading a thousand pages of therapy notes a day, you know, you, they need to see something that kind of makes that stand out to them. Yeah. Today's episode is proudly sponsored by MedBridge, your go-to resource for advancing your occupational therapy career and, of course, getting those necessary CEUs. If you are passionate about staying at the forefront of our field and enhancing your skills, MedBridge is a comprehensive solution. With the MedBridge subscription, you gain access to an extensive library of high-quality live and recorded courses led by industry experts. So stay up to date with the latest advancements in occupational therapy, explore evidence-based practice, and enhance your clinical skills. One reason that I really like and recommend MedBridge is because they have both intervention-based courses and policy and reimbursement-based courses, and that is a rare find in a CEU company. But here's the best part for our OT amplifiers community. If you use the promo code AMPLIFYOT at checkout, you'll unlock an exclusive 40% discount on your MedBridge subscription. Yes, you heard that right, 40% off with the code AMPLIFYOT, that's A-M-P-L-I-F-Y-O-T. This is a fantastic opportunity to save some money, elevate your practice, and support Amplify OT. So don't miss out on this chance to supercharge your professional development and head over to medbridge.com, use the promo code AmplifyOT, and enjoy the benefits of MedBridge while also supporting AmplifyOT and all the free resources that we produce here, like this podcast. So again, head to medbridge.com, use the code AmplifyOT at checkout, and we also have the link for you in the show notes. And I think that's something to having that support from a management perspective. Um, we do documentation audits like once or twice a year. And so, you know, you like get a score, right? And it's, it's right. not like school where you get graded, but it's also, you know, it's a good learning experience. The first mm-hmm. documentation audit we had felt more like a, this is what you're doing wrong. And the second documentation audit we had was these are good, but here are things to help make it stronger, right? Like right. these are the things that we have noticed because of the audits that we have gotten that these are the things that they're kind of looking for. And I think it's hard as a new grad to not take everything personally. I mean, it's hard mm-hmm. for me now to not take everything personally too, oh, yeah. but you have to like, you have to pull back a little bit and say, this is helping me be a stronger therapist because the services that we're providing in these settings are valuable and important for the residents and right. their families. Right. And if it's not documented appropriately, then people don't know what we do. Exactly. And I think that's, you know, really important to highlight. And you're talking about, audits and it's always an interesting balance finding finding where the priorities conflict right because mm-hmm. our priorities as our therapist are different from the priorities of a patient which are different from the priorities of our company and then are even continue to be different from the insurer right who's paying the bill right, right? the patient wants 
as much care as possible. We generally also tend to fall along that line of better safe than sorry, get them as much care as possible. But then the insurance company, they want them to get enough care that they won't cost more money. So it's not as much care as possible. It's how do we walk that line, right? And that's really hard. And then, of course, you have your company, right, which is trying to keep people long enough to make money, but not so long that they lose money, but then also still have to pay their staff. (laughs) Right. It's it's such a balance. It's tough. It's really tough. And I think that's the strongest point about the managed care is like you have to show enough Mm-hmm. progress that you have to show them that they are really getting the best bang for their buck by doing those services and so sometimes a lot of families ask me like if they lose like well what do you think and I always say I mean I'm biased as a therapist I'm always a proponent for more therapy right. always right a therapy is helpful I understand that it's different in all settings and I think it's beneficial to have home health after a skilled nursing stay. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I just tell them like, I'm a little bit biased. I'm a therapist. I think there should be more therapy, but this is what the insurance says and this is what they can do. And then the families have to decide, can they handle it? Or does there need to be like a plan B? Right. And that's where right. those conversations get, um, they can be hard because you as a therapist and I, myself as a manager, I know enough about like, the different levels of care that we offer in my own facility. And I know enough about what goes on like home health care versus outpatient therapy to explain it to family members that say, this is what it looks like. Because again, they don't, you don't know until you're in it, right? You don't know what you don't know. So that's helping them make that informed decision. And that's where kind Mm -hmm. of understanding that, you know, a key term keeps coming up insurance, 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 right? Of what, (laughs) what they will and will not pay for and what they will or will not approve. And you know, kind of, again, talking people through that, because again, you know, how, how therapy, how care looks now looks very different from how it looked 10, 5, 10, 15 years ago. And so if people mm-hmm. haven't had an experience with it, it's a new ball game. And if you're in Medicare versus Medicare Advantage, those are two very different systems very to deal different with. Ballgames. Even though they both say Medicare, they are very different. Very different. <laughs> you know, and so I think that's a, a key part. And you've highlighted that well. And so I'd love to ask you, what is your advice for people who are in your position, especially individuals who are earlier in their career in terms of if they're thinking about management roles, what would your advice be to them? I think my biggest piece of advice is that you are enough to do the job. If you want to do it, I think you also have to be flexible and you want to learn. I think you can't go in with, I'm going to fix everything. I have done trial and error stuff with my staff and some things have kind of worked out better and some (laughs) things have not. Right. And then you, you do it. Right. And there are some things that I do that I know that my staff appreciate. And then there are other things that I'm still, they're just things that happen behind the scenes. I think you also have to be a little bit comfortable with knowing that you may not get a lot of recognition for what you do. Right. And that's sometimes hard as a manager (laughs) because I am managing a lot of things at my company and it, it can't, it does feel like sometimes it goes unnoticed, but I know that, my team is solid and we're providing the best care for our residents. So I think, you know, some people will be like, Oh, think about pay. That's part of the That's part of the puzzle piece, right? If it's financially, it's going to be helpful. Great. But there's also a little bit of more of a responsibility. So you have to understand in your own self that like, if you want to do it and you think you could be a good leader at it, you might as well try, I guess. But I think you do have to reflect yourself and say, is this the right fit for me? 
will I be a good manager? And some people want to go into management because they've had terrible bosses. My mm-hmm. d- director of rehab before me was not terrible, not perfect. I'm also not perfect, you know, and there are things that I wanted to do differently. But that wasn't the sole reason to do it was like, oh, I could do it so much better. I was like, oh, these are things that I would want to do differently, right, for my staff to make it a solid team. Um, The financial piece is really just a part of it because you have to, I think you also have to understand what the culture is at the company and what the company's expectations are, right? And companies right now are very open about their expectations on productivity and motivation, I think. You know, I think that's a big that's the big headline in the rehab world is making mm-hmm. sure that we are do it. We as therapists and as therapy companies are kind of doing similar to what the insurance companies are doing, right? We're making sure that we are providing the care to give the staff what they need, but we don't want like too much or too little, right. you know, it's that balancing act of making sure that we are giving good care to our patients and that our staff are working appropriately and doing what's, you know, it's just such a big puzzle, the whole thing. It is. And, I, and I'd and be curious to know, you know, how has your perspective changed on productivity, on group and concurrent therapy, on kind of, you know, the big, I wouldn't even, taboo is not the right word, but kind of the, mm-hmm. the pain points maybe of working in SNP of mainly, you know, your producti- productivity, your group and concurrent. How has your perspective changed or has it changed since working as a staff therapist and now as a manager? I think it's definitely, they're like hot button topics right now. Mm -hmm. I think it's changed a little bit as a staff therapist to a manager and like a staff therapist, you're worried about your own productivity, right? Right. It's just my productivity, my productivity, my productivity. As a manager, I'm still worried about that, but I also have to worry about my whole team's productivity, right? Because that equals a number. That's that's what my company is looking at is the whole team. And if my team isn't measuring up, I have to be able to answer for why that is, right? Mm -hmm. Same with our modes of therapy. You know, as a staff person, I feel like you're just sometimes it can feel like I wonder if my staff feels this way that your manager's just harping again and again and again. This is where this is not where we are. This is what we want. And I just right. kind of feel like a broken record. And as a staff therapist, you know, you're just trying your best. And some people, you know, if you're hourly, it's hard because you don't know, like things your hours a little bit. And it's just it, it gets kind of messy in there. But as a manager, again, it's something that I have to answer for as a manager if it's not up to our standard I have to be able to say this is why right and so I think it's it's still something I'm navigating um but I think it shifts from a only what I'm doing to like Mm -hmm. my whole team um but I also want the team to feel like they are making what's clinically appropriate decisions for their patients because again I'm not treating as much I still have my hand in some of the caseload and I, I know everybody, right, at least by name. And I usually recognize them if they're in the gym and I say hi to them. But I don't always know the intricacies of what's going on in that plan of care. That's where I have to trust on my therapist mm-hmm. to say that it's appropriate this day. You know what I mean? To do X, Y, or Z, or I'm going to try to do a group. Like sometimes my staff would be like a big group, you know, like a bunch of my therapists would get together and do a big volleyball game. And each person will bring down like two people, you know what I mean? Just to make it kind of fun and interactive. And then they make like teams and I think the last one, the one team name was like team go home or something. You know what I mean? Like just to make it like, just to make it like fun and interactive. Right. And so the things like that, that I have to remember as a manager, like I'm trying to build that camaraderie yeah. and it, it is a standard, like I'm feeling the pressure because of my support, but like, it's hard to tell if the staff always feel that way, but it does have to be something 
that's like forefront of mind just because it's so hot button right now. And I, I haven't dug into the nitty gritty of the why yet. And I don't really want to, I don't really want to, <laughs> not, yeah. um, frankly, I'm just, uh, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but I just, you know, it's important to maintain the standards because I think what you will see happen is if you don't maintain the standards, then you don't work there anymore. Yeah. The reality is right of the job. And I think yeah. that's where it's always been interesting, you know, talking about these different options, right? Because we've talked about just thinking about productivity in general, a hundred percent. I mean, I think hundred percent productivity sometimes is just ridiculous, but yes, you know, there's also group and concurrent and that really throws off all the numbers and it depends how your company it calculates it. But like what a 50% or 80% productivity might look like in one setting may be very reasonable compared to another setting. Or, you know, Mm -hmm. we think about that, like workflows make such a big difference where, Mm -hmm. you know, I remember even acute care, it was much easier to kind of maintain your productivity when you were assigned to a couple floors versus when we were assigned Mm -hmm. to like six floors and I'm walking back and forth across this whole hospital, my productivity tanks. And, you know, it's not necessarily because I'm trying any less hard. It's just because it's set up in a way that's not conducive to a workflow. And I think that's what makes productivity so difficult to talk about mm-hmm. and also so testy is because it's really hard to compare mine to yours when right. it could be completely different. Where if your equipment locker is kept in the middle of the area, right. you know, that can make a huge difference. If you're running to the other side of the building all day for commodes and reachers, that's going to take a hit. Yeah, it's definitely, I think those are all very, like, productivity is, like, across the board in every setting. Most of therapy for group and concurrent, I think, are mostly in skilled nursing. So that is very right. specific to the setting that I work in. And that's the nature of the beast, right? In home health, it's a very different payment system, right? It's a very <laughs> different model, which is why it's important to at least even as a staff therapist, to understand the basics of mm-hmm. insurance. And if you don't know, ask your manager because they should know a little bit more than the basics, but Hopefully. they should at least know, right. They should at least know the difference between a med A and a med B. Like all, like the new people that I onboard, if, especially if you're new grads, I always go over payment, right? Medicare part A versus mm-hmm. Medicare part B, managed care A and all that stuff. And like hospice is a totally, again, a totally different, totally piece, different right? Game. And those are very special circumstances for therapy in my setting. But you know, it's something that you have to break down for people if they don't know. And as a new grad, like us, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't get a whole lot of policy <laughs> in school, which is fine. And it doesn't make you any less of a, a therapist for not knowing. Mm-hmm. I just think you have to have the confidence to say, hey, I don't know. Can you help me? Right? What does this mean? That's how I learned a little bit more. My policy oh, in yeah. the skilled nursing setting as a new grad was saying, what does this mean? I, I don't understand. Yeah. Ask questions. Ask for the policy. Right. And I think that's and I think like exactly what you said, you know, where hopefully the manager does know more because theoretically they should have more experience and should hopefully have done some due diligence and training. But there's Mm -hmm. also, too, you have managers who've been working for 40 years and Mm -hmm. know the payment policies of when they learned payment policies, but may not know the payment policies of today. What I like to call our Frankenstein policies, which are bits and pieces (laughs) of that one and bits and pieces of this one, you know, and they just make a wrong policy. And so I think that's where having that going back to the source and like you talking about, Mm -hmm. you know, where I always try and send a CMS document because I've always found that my argument is a lot more powerful when I have evidence to back it up or when I'm asking questions and saying, you know, this is what I found from CMS or this is what I found from AOTA. 
And it's different from what you said. Could you either explain mm-hmm. to me why it's different or are we both misunderstanding something? Because there's plenty of times where someone is, I mean, I misunderstand policies all the time. I don't know the answer to everything. It's not written in a way that's meant for it to be easy to understand, you know? And so there's definitely room where we're going to make mistakes. And I think having that confidence, I like that you highlight that, that knowing you're enough, you know, you're enough to ask questions, you're enough to be in management and you deserve to have information and being brave enough to kind of ask those questions and advocate is really important. Mm-hmm. Like you said, you know, we're, we can't have change if we aren't involved. And if you mm-hmm. want to see change in how management is run, then maybe you should become a manager. We've talked about right. that with even associations or anywhere, government, you know, if you want to see change, participate, be involved, run for office. I don't know, whatever it is that you want to do, right? That if you want to see change in those places, it's much easier to do it if you're able to get involved and ask questions and rub some elbows and make friends. Right. Absolutely. It's like easier. <laughs> for sure. Perfect. Well, thank you, Lauren. Do you have any other parting words that you would like to share with anyone listening? I would just say whether you're just starting as an OT, you've been doing it for a while, if you're a manager or not, just know that you're enough as an OT. You don't have to you don't have to feel pressure from anybody, whether whatever platform you listen to, whatever content you're intaking, you don't have to be creative all the time. You can just do what you feel comfortable doing and what's right for your patients because everybody's different. And at the end of the day, hopefully they're better for knowing you <laughs> and they'll remember. Right? That, oh yeah, that was Lauren. She was that cool OT that showed me how to use my sock aid because she said it's her favorite, <laughs> which it is my favorite, right? It's my favorite piece to show people. But <laughs> I think it's just important to know that like you went to school for a reason and sometimes you have to remind yourself why why you do this, um, which sometimes you have to do it every day. Sometimes you have to do it like once a week, you know? <laughs> but just knowing that, you know, what you're doing and where you are is fine. And if you don't like where you are, what you're doing, then try to find something else right? There are plenty of different places to be. You don't have to feel like you're unhappy all the time. You know, having a couple bad days, have them work in skilled nursing. (laughs) Not every day is easy or fun, you know, but it's just kind of taking stock of what's important for you and making sure that you remind yourself that you're doing a good job and the OT profession is better for it. Oh, I love that. I think that's wonderful and a beautiful message and just takes me back to my own feelings as a new grad, my mom always used to tell me, you know, you did the best you could with the information you mm-hmm. had. And I think that's always, and I always used to tell myself in home health, like every day, like it may not have yeah. been the best OT, but it probably wasn't the worst OT and it right. was better than none, you know, like right. Right. it may not have been the best Perfect. therapy Great. session that person ever had, but it was better than never having had, you know, occupational therapy at all. And that's, a, that's a win. All right. Well, I love that. Well, thank you so much. Lauren, I appreciate it. I look forward to all that you're going to accomplish. And if you want to chat with Lauren, you can find her in the Amplify OT membership and, mm-hmm. or, you know, maybe you can go work for her someday. Who knows maybe. what you'll accomplish. <laughs> you're early in the career. You've got a long way to go. <laughs> I know. I know. Thank you so much. If you made it this far, I want to just take a moment to say thank you so much for listening to the Amplify OT podcast. And I hope you're feeling a little more inspired and prepared to amplify your value and the value of occupational therapy. If you found yourself at any point thinking, gosh, I guess policy isn't that dull and boring, then you're definitely going to love how we talk about policy and advocacy in the Amplify OT membership. There's a link in the show notes where you can sign up today so you can take an immediate next step towards emerging as a confident clinician. And of course, don't forget to follow the Amplify OT podcast so that way you never miss an episode. 
And you know, while you're there, why don't you go ahead and leave us a five-star review because that's the best way to help others find the podcast too. And of course, thank you so much to Jessica Riccio for editing this podcast and for all of you for giving me a reason to record it. You're now officially part of the OT Amplifier community and you are now prepared to go out there and advocate for OT because remember, if we don't advocate for occupational therapy, then who will?